Good evening. Uh, welcome to our Wednesday evening sermon series uh, looking at Hebrews. Um, I'm Mike, I'm one of the congregation here at LBC. And this evening we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I don't know about you, we've been in lockdown for a good few months now and I've started running. I don't know if you've started anything new, um, but I try to go a few times a week in the morning and uh, I can't pretend it's something I enjoy. Uh, running is something that I definitely endure. Um, I was definitely a swimmer when I was younger. That was what I loved. And I used to swim uh, regularly. I'd compete um, in competitions. And one that sticks in the memory is one when I was 10 or 11 years old. And it was called the Tadpole League. It happened on a Friday night. Um, and the thing that was so memorable about it was the music. If you got into the final, they'd pump out the eye of the tiger as they called out the swimmers one by one. In lane one, representing Bootle, Michael Thompson... You felt like you were massive. You felt like you're an Olympic champion waiting to compete. And if you were lucky enough to get a medal, there'd be more music and more celebration. They'd pump out simply the best, or we are the champions, as you proceeded to the podium to get your medal in front of thousands, or I felt like it, of cheering parents who were there only because they had to be. But for you at the time, it felt like we were incredible Olympic champions, imitating our heroes, racing like Ian Thorpe, Maybe it was, wasn't swimming for you, maybe it was something else, maybe it was a uh, guitar and you were imitating Eric Clapton or trying to write songs like Paul McCartney. Maybe it was running like Paula Ratcliffe. But we all remember those things where we imitate other people and look at the example and pretend to be them. Well, tonight we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer tells us, now it's our turn. So before we read it, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how you speak to us and how you encourage us and challenge us through it. And Father, as we look at it to this evening, we pray that we will see Jesus more clearly and be encouraged to run the race before us. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you've got a Bible uh, with you, that would be great if you could turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the, the, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline... In all we, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to, inher- desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Well, the imagery right at the start of Hebrews chapter 12 is that of an ancient Olympics. There would be multitudes of spectators from the towns and cities of Greece who would descend on the town of Olympia to watch the best Greek youngsters race each other. A course would be set and a stage erected at the end where the judges would sit, victors and champions from previous years. And during the Olympics, the the, uh, racers would run in the morning and the afternoon and the morning racers would wait until the evening to get their their medals their prizes and they would join the crowd to watch the racing for the afternoon and so when we see this in hebrews chapter 12 we see what's going on the he- the heroes of faith that jonathan showed us last week are there in the crowd they have run their race successfully and they are waiting for their prize and they are there watching us as we now run our race they've passed on the baton if you like to the hebrews who need to run their race or to us who run ours. So when it's our turn, we run the race single-mindedly and determinedly. We don't wear our jeans and t-shirt. We get changed into proper running gear. We don't run our race thinking about how to cook the perfect steak or the dishes we haven't done. We run single-mindedly and determinedly to gain the prize. Maybe thinking about the Olympics isn't you. Maybe it's in lockdown. Um, I've realised how easy it is for me to be distracted. Some of my distractions are normal and good. They're jobs that need doing, the dishes, the washing, the cooking. Some of them are probably a bit less of a priority. Painting the shed, um, trying to learn piano, browsing eBay. But to my boss, it really doesn't matter what it is that's distracted me. What my boss wants is for me to do my work. She's not really bothered whether I'm faffing on eBay or cooking tea. If I don't do the work, that's not good for them. And so the writer to the Hebrews is flagging up the fact that we need to be single-minded in our race, in our task before us. We pursue holiness, we pursue Jesus, and we run the race looking to the future. We're single-minded. Maybe for you, there's, there's distractions that have come in this season of life that have caught you unawares. Things that didn't bother you before or distract you, but now they are. Maybe it's, it's Netflix or home improvements. Now you've spent more time in the garden, you've seen how much needs to be done. Whatever it might be, the writer urges us to throw aside whatever hinders us from pursuing Jesus to pursue our greatest joy in him. That's not to say we don't do other things. I know this week I've been thinking about my talk. It hasn't stopped me doing other things. I've done them, but I've had to think about this and prepare my heart and mind to to preach and that's what we do in our Christian life we don't avoid other things we do everything that we need to do but we focus on Jesus single-mindedly Paul tells the Colossians that they've died and their life is now hidden with Christ in God 
Not only is our future reality bound up in Jesus, but our present reality is there. So we're called to live like it now and tomorrow and the next day and the next, right up until we die or Jesus returns. Just like an Olympic race, the race of faith, it's not how we start that matters the most, it's how we finish. Now remember, the winners from the morning race at the ancient Olympics would be the spectators for the afternoon. And they would be reminders of a, reminders of a race well run for the competitors. But on the stage at the end of the track were the ultimate examples, the heroes of yesteryear. And that is where the writer turns our eyes in verse 2. Look down with me at verse 2. Let us look, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that he may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, when we look at these verses, Jesus is the one at the end of the track, the one at the end of the race that is marked out for us, and he's the one that we fix our eyes to. And he is the founder and perfecter, or the author of the NIV, of faith. He's the one who trailblazes it, literally. If you like, he's the Steve Jobs who pioneered a smartphone, or the Louis Armstrong pioneering in jazz. He's not only the one leading the race, but he's the one who shows us exactly what faith looks like. And he is the author who makes faith possible. We read, don't we, that he endured the cross in verse 2. And when we think about it, we realise that without the cross of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, there would be no faith. I'm, I'm rubbish at DIY. If you ask Em, she'll tell you of, of many disasters. Um, and... So when it comes to asking someone to, to help, you have to put your faith in them. You ask around, don't you? Do you know a plumber who's any good? Do you know an electrician? Oh, who can you trust with that? But when we find someone, we have to put our faith in them. I can't go behind the walls and see if the electrics have been done well. I have to trust that the workman has done the job. And so it is um, in many aspects of life. We have to put our faith in someone else. And Jesus is the one who makes faith possible because he is the one who has died and has risen again. It's a bit like John with his climbing that he talked about a few weeks back. When he abseils down a rock that he's been climbing, he puts his faith in the rope as he puts one foot before the other. And it is Jesus whose death and resurrection makes our faith possible, who makes it possible for us to know God. Now, Jesus is the one who makes faith possible because he is the true and perfect high priest and the true and perfect sacrifice who can deal with our sin and bring us to the Father. The writer is simply reminding the Hebrews of this when he talks of the cross here. Jesus isn't merely another example of faith. He is the ultimate example and the ultimate pioneer. And we can see in verse four, can't we, that there's, a, there's going to be a struggle. There's going to be a struggle for our life of faith. And Jesus has never been anything but upfront when he talks about what it is like to follow him. He promises life in all its fullness in John chapter 10. He promises to be with us always in Matthew 28. He promises rest to all the weary who come to in Matthew 11. But he also says in Matthew 16 that following him means taking up your cross and following him. He says that he's, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life in Matthew 7. And he says in John 16, if, if people hated him, they're going to hate his followers too. Martin Luther used to talk of the Christian life as a cross-shaped life. Death and suffering now, but glory beyond compare to follow. 
Now, if we're honest, we've not been in the position of the Hebrews in the UK for a long time where we might be called to resist the struggling sin by shedding our blood. Jesus did, but we've not been called to that yet. Now, there's Christians around the world who have. In fact, one source says that since Jesus' time, there have been 70 million martyrs for the faith, with 65% of them in the 20th century alone. For us, though, shame can be a sufficient thing to keep our mouths shut from speaking of Jesus. How can anyone believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? How intolerant. God made the world? Rubbish. God speaks? You nutter. Just thinking of that makes me anxious and makes me shudder but the writer wants to encourage us to keep pressing on and keep looking to the reality of future glory in Jesus and keep speaking of him and keep living for him before we move on though I want us to see one more thing that is helpful as we consider Jesus examples can be helpful can't they they can show us what we need to do and how to do it and they can encourage us but they can also crush us I mean who hasn't read of Abraham's faith at the start of Genesis, when he was prepared to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, certain that God could raise him from the dead, and look at ashamedly at your own paltry faith. Examples might show us what to do, but they never give us the power to actually do it. But here's where Jesus is a different example than all the examples in chapter 11, because he isn't just an example. He's the means by which we can run. Have a look with me at verse two again to see how Jesus ran with endurance. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus could endure the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Now, if we could plug into that joy, then just think what we'll be able to endure. Just think what strong lives of faith we'll live. What was it? That was the joy before him that enabled Jesus to endure the cross. Now, Paul says in 1 Timothy that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. That's been the whole point of the book of Hebrews so far, that we've seen Jesus is the great high priest who brings us to the Father and the great sacrifice who deals with our sin. See, Jesus came to bring us to God. And the very heart of God and his glory is a glory that desires to save sinners. Jesus saw such joy in saving his people that he could endure the cross. Thomas Goodwin, writing over 300 years ago, said Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, relieving and comforting his members or people here on earth. So often we think that Jesus just has to save. That's what he does. He's God. But he does it reluctantly. He does it hard-heartedly. He does it resentfully that we've messed up again and again. Perhaps he'll save others, but when we look at our own lives, our own cold-hearted apathy, we think, no, he can't be for me. Dane Ortland writes in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, when we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out, not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise together. You see, when Jesus calls us his body, he's telling us that he wants us to be healthy, to be happy, to be part of him and to be whole. What person doesn't want their body to be well? And remember, Jesus isn't merely interested in us being forgiven. He wants us. 
In John 17, he prays, Father, I desire that they also may be with me. Dane Ortland says again, when we come to Jesus for mercy and love and help in our anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, we're not going against the flow of his own deepest wishes. We're going with them. So let me say now, if you're feeling like following Jesus is tough right now, if faith feels hard, if Jesus feels distant, come to him. Come like the, the father in, in Mark 9 who had a, a boy with a spirit who said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Come to Jesus, the author of faith, and ask because he is willing and able to help. Now, that sounds really encouraging and helpful, doesn't it? And you'd be forgiven for thinking, as I expect the Hebrew Christians were at this point in the letter. If that is how God feels towards his people, if that is the joy that he feels for us, then why is there any suffering for a Christian? Why is life hard? You see, for the Hebrews, they'd, they'd suffered because they were Christians, not in spite of it. So when they thought about life, it would make sense for them to wonder if it was worth it. Did it make sense? Why, why would God let this happen to his people? They'd already joyfully expect, accepted the plundering their property in chapter 10. And we've just read that the, there's a possibility that they might be shedding blood for their faith. How can God love his people if that's the world they live in? Well, often for us, we betray our hearts in this way when we speak of, of God being in something when it goes well. When we get offered a, a promotion at work, oh, God was in it. When someone's healed of a sickness that we've prayed over. God was in it. God was kind. When we get a parking space, as we, we pray, um, God gave it to us because he's kind. Do we not think that God is, is not in something or not kind when the outcome isn't what we expect or what we want? Has God abandoned his children when they don't get everything that they ask for? Well, the writer takes his, his hearers to Proverbs chapter 3 to show them how short-sighted this is. My son, he says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's interesting to me anyway that here the writer moves from a coach illustration and a, a runner, um, but to a parent. You see, the Bible doesn't talk about coaches training God's people, but a father discipline, disciplining his children amazing isn't it when we think of that that God is reminding us that we are his children and he treats us as such now we if we think about it um if we're parents and how we bring up our children or looking back to how our parents raised us um we know that parents bring them up to be disciplined often we we think of we read these and uh, maybe flinch because we think of, of fathers who are absent and cold or distant or violent too preoccupied with their own interests to care for their children but whatever our experience is we know what a father should do we know what our good father is like and so here we see that the lord is a good father raising us as he sees best think of your parenting if you've got children or your parents when they raised you with hindsight we, we discipline our children to teach them what is right and wrong we discipline them and teach them to, to say please and thank you, to be polite, or to hold our hands as we cross the road, to avoid our hot mugs of tea so they don't get burnt. We have our little sayings, don't they? That, um, they chirp back to us. Sofas are for sitting on, 
or hot tea. Um, you can tell how old uh, my kids are at the moment, can't you? But um, we know that we discipline our children. We teach them things because we care for them. We want them to be, be safe and to grow up to be uh, well-rounded, godly individuals. We tell them and set boundaries and consequences so that they follow through on what we say. And if we don't do that, well, really, we're, we're neglecting our, our job to bring them up. Now, as children, um, it's not always easy, is it? There's many tears shed when your parents discipline you. It's not pleasant at the time. But we can look back, can't we, and be grateful that our parents disciplined us. They brought us up. They taught us right from wrong. Thinking through parental discipline as well, we can see that our values shine through how we bring up our kids. Yesterday, we've enjoying, we were enjoying a bit more of the freedoms now that lockdown is easing gradually. I went to Arley Hall um, and our kids um, definitely stood out. Every other child there seemed to be quiet and, and reserved and well behaved. And ours were loud and, and just couldn't help enjoy, um, exploring and running around and shoutedly, shouting excitedly. Um, we obviously don't value our children being quiet. But maybe you can look back and see uh, what you do value sleep. And so we train our children to sleep, don't we? We want them to sleep through the night so we can get some rest. Because our values shine through how we bring up our children. And our Heavenly Father is no different. His values shine through his discipline. And so he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's in verse 10. Our Heavenly Father is disciplining us to be like Jesus, tender-hearted yet firm. To bring out the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and self-control. So when things don't go as we hope for, when God doesn't answer our prayers as we expect, when we let alone don't get the promotion but we lose our job or, or fall out with friends, when our children embarrass us or we don't get the parking space we prayed for, remember that God is disciplining us. He has something better for us. He's training us to be He's training us in the family ways so we share in the family likeness and we are more and more like Jesus. The writer then moves to some closing remarks for this section and he gives us an example of an anti-hero to avoid, if you like. Because we've got a race to run and because we have a father who is working to make us holy, we're to run with endurance. That's where we get to in verse 12. We're to run straight, to press on, to look to Jesus and go. We're to strive for peace. We don't want to put unnecessary burdens on our brothers and sisters running the race. And we don't want to place obstacles on those outside the faith that keep them from the loving, loving kindness of Jesus. Right back at the start of the Bible in Genesis 4, Cain killed his brother Abel. And when God asked him where Abel was, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? Well, in Hebrews 12, we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. The race isn't a solo affair. We're to look out for one another and guard our own walk so we don't discourage a fellow Christian. How can we do that in lockdown when we, it's harder to meet together? And that's a challenge we need to think through. How can we encourage one another to run the race set before us with endurance and perseverance and look to Jesus? Have a think this week how you could encourage someone at church to fix their eyes on Jesus. But finally, we're given an example of Esau. Esau um, from right at the start of the Bible in Genesis. And he was the firstborn son of Jacob. 
He was in line to receive the promises that God had given Abraham to receive a land, to have descendants numbering the stars in the sky and to have God himself as his God. He'd even be in the family line of Jesus. But one day he'd been out hunting and he was exhausted and hungry. And we read in Genesis 25 that his brother Jacob was cooking stew. Esau walked in and demanded some. But Jacob was was quite, was quite sly, really. He said, I'll, I'll give you some, but only if you give up the birthright. If you give up the right to be the firstborn son with all those promises. And Esau's response, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? He thought little of all the promises of God. You see, we're called to think about Jesus and to look and see how he thought little of the cross because he could see the greater reward to come. Esau did the opposite. He thought little of the reward and thought much of his present situation. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling the people to do, to not be like Esau, to look like Jesus to the reward. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, Look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Look to Jesus and run the race with endurance. Don't give up on all that God has for his people, for a bowl of stew. So as we close, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Thank you that he is the one who endured the cross for the joy set before him. Thank you that he delights to call us his. He delights to bring us into his family. And thank you that you, our heavenly father, discipline us and bring us up as your children so that we might share in the family likeness. We do pray that you will fix our eyes on Jesus this week. Help us to see more of who he is, more of his heart for us. Please encourage us and help us to encourage others as we run the race. Please give us perseverance. Amen. Well, thank you for listening this evening. And it would be great if you'd like to join us on our our Zoom call to chat through the passage a bit more. Hopefully see you there. Thank you.